The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This week, my special guest is Paul McCulley. Paul has been chief economist, bond desk manager, uh, a whole number of roles, uh, member of the investment community, and perhaps most important, confidant of uh, Bill Gross at PIMCO for many, many years. He is now quasi-retired. He's in his um, mid to late 50s. Uh, and I believe he's going to eventually find his way to some Ivy League school um, as a professor. He, he's he's far too experienced, knowledgeable, and and a great communicator to to just retire and and let those skills waste. He'll he'll find his way to a professorship somewhere. We have a long and and really fascinating conversation about the Federal Reserve and the financial crisis the state of the global economy, what's going on in inflation and deflation. We really talked about everything and anything. And as you'll hear, he can wax eloquent on just about any subject in tremendous depth. I can re regale you and recount some of the highlights, but I don't want to reveal any spoilers. So rather than me doing my usual five-minute babble to start the podcast, instead, I'm just going to say without any further ado, my conversation with PIMCO's Paul McCulley. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Paul McCulley. He is probably best known as the Chief Economist and Managing Director at PIMCO, where he served from 1999 to 2010. Is that about right? That's correct. With a little stint afterwards, yes. uh, sort of a return visit. Uh, got his MBA from Columbia Business School, headed PIMCO's short-term bond desk, led the cyclical economic forums, and was a member of the investment committee, named to the institutional All-America Fixed Income Research Team. Did I get that right? I really you got that, that right. I think of Paul as one of the most astute Fed watchers there is. He's often on the short list as a, a potential FOMC role. Uh, McCulley coined the term Minsky moment in response to the Russian uh, financial crisis in 1998 and is rumored to have coined the phrase shadow banking system. It's more than a rumor. More than a rumor. That You get full credit for that. Currently, he's a member of the board of the Global Interdependence Center, better known as GIC. Uh, it's a think tank in Philly. And pretty much what you're doing these days is thinking, writing, and speaking. Is that... Uh, the way you like to describe it? Yeah, it is. I'm first gainfully unemployed, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that I'm retired, but I'm not retired from the things that I love doing. Uh, and it really comes down to global macro. And I think about it, I write about it, and I give about one lecture or speech a month. So right now, that's what I'm doing. 
Uh, I'm getting more closely involved in the academic arena uh, and may end up in the next six months as an adjunct professor at some esteemed institution, but that's still in the works. But right now, I like to uh, uh, to, th- to think and write and speak. And uh, uh, I, uh, when I speak for nonprofits and for academics, the price is zero. There you go. And occasionally, I speak uh, for a for-profit, and the uh, price is a large number. <laughs> so it's <laughs> well, either zero or a large num- so number, nothing in between. So we could describe you as gainfully retired. Exactly. All right. And and you're in your 50s. You're not uh, really at retirement age. You're looking to do something. By the way, I forgot to say, Paul McCulley, welcome to Bloomberg. Oh, thanks. Good so, to see you, Barry. So, so nice to have you here. Um, so let's start out talking a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you're, you're a Virginia boy, right? Is that where you're from? I grew up in rural Virginia, outside of Stanton, Virginia, which is down in the Central Valley of Virginia, about three hours southwest of... Uh, of Washington, D.C., a beautiful area. Uh, I grew up there as a Baptist minister's son and graduated from high school uh, in 1975 mm-hmm. and went to Grinnell College out in Iowa. Uh, so so from How Green Is Your Valley to Iowa to New York City, that's kind of a surprising uh, way to bounce around. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, Grinnell, I'm on the board of trustees at Grinnell, and I've been so for a number of years. Is a special place in my life and heart in that they recruited me uh, in 1975 as a really? hick from Virginia. Uh, Grinnell is a small, private, liberal arts college. Traditional liberal arts education. Exactly. You learn a lot about a lot of different things and be able to use it in a variety of applications learn how to think, not just be an expert in a narrow space. Can we do a, uh, an infomercial for you for Grinnell? Uh, I, I mean, that's that's what... That's know. what a good liberal arts education yeah. is about. Uh, and Grinnell is a national college, uh, and part of their endeavor in recruiting uh, is that they literally buy the list from the SAT people who do uh, of students throughout the country who do well... A and B might need some financial help in order to go to Grinnell. Where, where were they when I was in high school? So I came up on their meter on the SATs of a kid from rural Virginia, put the two together, uh, and they started talking to me. And then the third factor is that I was a runner uh, in, uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sixth in the state of Virginia my senior year in cross country. And the cross-country coach at Grinnell College said, hmm, maybe we got a hat trick here. There you go. Uh, so, so how do you go from Grinnell to uh, MBA at Columbia? That was just an old-fashioned sort of uh, process in that when I was graduating uh, from Grinnell with a degree in economics, I wanted to go to business school and looked at the brand-name business schools. And sure. I was intrigued by uh, – by Columbia. Uh, I had never been to New York City before oh, really? uh, and applied. And for some reason, I was accepted. Uh, and I say for some reason in that I was 22 and went straight from college to, to business school. Nothing in between. Nothing in between. And I understand that that is just not done anymore. Right. They want I, people to have a year or two of real yeah. world experience. Yeah. I think in my class at Columbia, 10% of us uh, were the kids who went straight from college. Right. So I got out of of, uh, of Columbia at 24. 
Right. Uh, Relatively young to have an NBA and enter the world. Right. So, couple of questions about Columbia. A couple of weeks ago, we had Leon Cooperman of Omega Advisors, and he couldn't be more effusive in praise for his Columbia experience. He still buds with some of his classmates, one in particular, Mario Gabelli, also Art Sandberg, formerly of uh, Pequot. What really stood out to you about Columbia and any people you're still tight with from back in those days? I really enjoyed my two years at Columbia uh, because it gave me a chance to more from economics, and that's really what I was about as an undergrad, mm-hmm. uh, into finance and markets. So I think my two years at Columbia really gave me the melding of economics and finance, which set me up nicely for what turned out to be the rest of my career. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, Paul McCulley. He was chief economist at PIMCO for a a really fascinating period of time. The dot-com collapse throughout the 2000s, the financial crisis. One of the things I'm curious about is, so you go to Columbia to get your MBA. They're really known as a deep value shop on the equity side, yet, yet you end up running a bond desk, as well as doing the global macro. How, how did that come about? Columbia is known as a stockhouse uh, when you think in terms of the famous graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a macroeconomist who also uh, loves finance and try to merge the two, which ultimately was the reason I became such a Minskyite, if you will, mm-hmm. of macro and finance. Uh, and I learned all the appropriate equity models, which... Uh, was a good thing while I was at Columbia. Uh, But actually, I did not get a job immediately on Wall Street in 1981. Remember, 1981 was not a really great time for Wall Street. I was a 24-year-old kid with a deep Southern accent, and I interviewed with all the major players because I did well there and didn't get a job with no Mor- offers from any of these from guys. Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or any of the major players. Uh, so I took a job from my first two years out of Columbia, uh, working for Conoco, uh, a division of at that time Dupont. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first two years were as a speechwriter for the executives of Conoco. Really? That's fascinating. So that was the first thing I did was actually as a ghostwriter for the executives doing op-eds and speeches and that sort of thing. And I got my first job on Wall Street in 1983 uh, at E.F. Hutton. Oh, really? We've had plenty of E.F. Hutton people pass through here. In fact, E.F. Hutton seems to have been a huge feeder, obviously the spin out of Lehman Brothers, but also, I know a lot of people who ended up going from uh, E.F. Hutton to Bear Stearns and E.F. Hutton to a number of other shops. Uh, so how do you go from E.F. Hutton, ultimately, you between E.F. Hutton and PIMCO, you find your way to UBS, which I think was Warburg at the time. Yeah, it was. It's kind of a... I haven't thought about my CV in a long period of time. you got to update it. It's a little skimpy. <laughs> a little skimpy. Actually, the story of of 1983 when I went to E.F. Hutton, uh, Eddie Ardini had been the chief oh, economist sure, of, course. Of, uh, uh, of E.F. Hutton. In fact, I had studied under Eddie when he was an adjunct professor at Columbia, and it turned out he had left and went to Prue. There had been a big sort of move. He had been at Prue for a long time. And when he left E.F. Hutton, there was an economist in corporate finance there with a Ph.D., 
from Hopkins named Bob Barbera. Uh huh. So they put him into action as the chief economist, and he was looking for a number two uh, who understood finance because he was an energy economist. Right. So Bob and I uh, worked together uh, for four years, great relationship between 1983 and 1987. And then I left for three years to go work for Columbia Savings and Loan Mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills, California, for Tom Spiegel back during the Milken days. Sure. Uh, And worked there for three years, not in junk bonds, but in running interest rate risk uh, for the SNL. And then junk bonds blew it up, and then I went to PIMCO in 1990. So so did you— First trip to California, was that the first time, first experience at West, or had you been there previously? I had traveled during my E.F. Hutton days to California, but my move to California uh, the first time was in 1987. Uh, I spent three years working with Columbia in the Drexel Hub, uh, and then Bill Gross gave me a job when I was unemployed in 1990, a quarter century ago. So how long were you at PIMCO for in total? I was two years there, between 90 and 92, uh, and then I got the job uh, as chief economist for UBS. And I did that for seven years until, and then back to until PIMCO 1999, and ah. Bill Gross called me up and said, you're coming home. And I came home there in 1999. So, so let's talk a little bit about Bill, because we've had him on the show I find him to be a fascinating guy. Um, what was it like working with somebody who is, you know, larger than life? Uh, he's supposed to be a tough character to work for. I've known Bill for 25 years, and I've known him well for 25 years. So it's kind of hard to give you right. just a snapshot of Bill because my life experience with Bill is a movie right. from, from an unemployed kid in 1990. Uh, to literally last year when I suited up one more time uh, at his personal request as a personal friend uh, for four months last year. So it's a very long uh, movie with me, a wonderful movie. Uh, He is a fascinating person, incredibly smart, uh, sometimes incredibly stubborn. Right. I get that sense also. A absolute... Huge heart, but hides it exceedingly well. He told us some really interesting stories about walking around, you know, Newport Beach in the 90s and the 2000s and people asking him, hey, Bill, what do we do with our money? And he would stop and say, look at this fund. This is something that makes might make sense for you. He seems very accessible to people, very, uh, very real. You also worked with him and Muhammad Alarian. What's it like having... Two really smart, outsized personalities, and you're kind of in the middle. How, how is that as an experience? I know both men exceedingly well, and both men are close personal friends of mine. They're exceedingly different, and I think that's why their marriage, and that's what it was, mm-hmm. lasted for as long as it did very effectively Uh, Yeah, by any measure, that was—I know everybody focuses on the acrimonious divorce, but that was a tremendously successful period in PIMCO's history. It really, really was. Muhammad came back from Harvard, uh, and that was right before we went into the Minsky moment. We were prepared 
Uh, we had our risk management in order. Uh, and uh, for the following number of years, uh, it was truly Camelot. It so, really so was. Uh, the one real important question I have to ask about PIMCO, their growth corresponded with a tremendous bond bull market, a 30-plus year bond bull market. But every other bond manager had the same wind at, at their back. What did PIMCO do that allowed them to capitalize on that market so much better than just about everybody else? I think there are a lot of factors. First and foremost is the pure genius of the founders. And there were three founders, not just Bill right. Gross, uh, but Jim Muzzy and Bill Podlick. Mm -hmm. Bill Podlick was an amazing businessman. Jim Muzzy, they're, they're all three alive. Jim right. Muzzy is an amazing client man and marketing man. And Bill Gross is an amazing investor. So from the beginning of the firm, they had a division of labor. Is you run the business, you run the clients, and I run the money. Uh, and so therefore, there was a clear articulation of whose job was whose job, and the three men who ran the place from the beginning did an extraordinary job of doing their jobs and cooperating. So I think the part of it is the genius of the organizational structure and the three men who were the founders. I think that's hugely important because I look at a lot of other competitors and they've never really quite grasped that it is a three-part business and that you can be really good at one part, but maybe not the other two. So I think that is uh, a key factor. Another factor, and here I simply have to take my hat off to Bill Gross, uh, he's brilliant. Uh, he is a macro thinker. Uh, and also, he is a very good marketer. Uh, so in the last minute we have, let me ask you this related question. Did it become harder and harder to keep delivering the sort of performance numbers the firm became known for as the size uh, continued to grow? Or was that just something that had to be uh, dealt with that everybody deals with as they grow? Bill has spoken to this, and I think he's spoken the truth. By definition, it gets harder the bigger you are. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Paul McCulley. He was chief economist and part of the investment committee at PIMCO for quite a long time. Let's talk a little bit about this global economy, which seems to be a little bit in flux. First question, inflation, disinflation, or deflation? From a global perspective, the predominant tailwind is disinflation, if not deflation. Describe the difference between the two for listeners who may not pick up the nuances between the, them. Disinflation is a slowdown in the rate of inflation. So, so prices are still rising, but rising at a slower rate, where deflation is actually a fall in prices. And we're experiencing deflation in a lot of commodities with everyone knowing about oil. That's deflation, whereas disinflation would be just a, uh, a very, very slow and slower rate of increase. Slowing inflation as opposed to falling prices. Yeah. Perfect example. Suppose you got a 3% raise last year 
and this year you got a 1% raise. You experienced disinflation. You went from a 3% raise to a 1% raise. If your boss cut your pay by 3%, you experienced deflation, There's my friend. actual deflation. So you, you mentioned oil. Let's talk about it. Oil peaked last year at $112. It's now running at about $43. That's a 60% decrease. So the two questions that everyone wants to know, what are the causes of this? I don't know if that's all that challenging of a question with the dollar at multi-year highs, massive supplies coming online, and softening of demand. The more important question is, what are the implications of this falling oil price? Oil price. What does this mean to the U.S.? What does it mean to countries like China and the global economy? And feel free to completely disagree with my causes. Uh, no, I, part I, of it. I think I agree with your causes. I would put the dollar at the low at the low end of my list. At the highest end is the fact that at a hundred dollar plus for oil and technology, you had an incredible economic incentive to increase supply. And, and that's we did, simple. We did in huge, huge. We amounts. did in huge, and so and supply outstripped demand. OPEC sucked it up. Saudi Arabia sucked it up and kept the price up there. But ultimately, the sheer force of increased supply meant that if Saudi Arabia continued the game and tried to defend it at a hundred, they would not be in the oil production business anymore. Uh, so uh, that was the underlying economics, microeconomics uh, of that. Is that a hundred didn't work? Uh, and I. Don't know if 40 works, but clearly 40 is more likely to work than 100. And now we have Iran coming online as well. How, what's that going to do to supply it's, out It certainly is, relative to where we were, going to increase supply. And global demand has been exceedingly weak uh, because global economic activity, global aggregate demand uh, has been weak ever since uh, the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and I think demand for oil really is more a function of growth than it is the price. Uh, and right now, uh, the demand side is impacted negatively by weak growth, and you got supply side of a flood. So you put two and two together, and you get 40 buck oil. There you go. And, and, and you know, when you're growing robustly, it almost doesn't matter what the price of oil is. We need it. Bring it in. Yeah. Let, let's just just get it in here. No one thinks twice about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean and, and long terms, uh, in the short run, the demand for oil is a whole lot more income elastic than it is price elastic. So let, let's talk about. So we've seen, for lack of a better word, punk growth yep. ever since the crisis. It, the U.S. seems to be leading in the recovery. Behind us is Japan. Behind Japan is Europe. What's it going to take to see global growth return to, forget 5% or 4%, how about 3% in the United States and 3% in Europe? I'm not looking for a return to robust global growth for a long, long time. And there are several reasons for that. First and foremost is my diagnosis of the breaking growth going back to 2008. In the years prior to the financial crisis, you had a financial sector boom. Mm -hmm. You had a private sector borrowing boom. We all know about it in the housing sector here, but also the uh, club med countries in Europe had a massive private sector 
boom and borrowing. So you were driving growth with increased private leverage. Ever since then, the private sector has been delevering either outright or slowing its pace of debt accumulation. So you've had a negative from the private sector because of delevering. Now, logic, good old-fashioned Keynesian logic from where uh, I live and breathe, would suggest if the private sector is in force delevering, the government sector should go the other direction in order to maintain adequate aggregate demand. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Paul McCulley. He served as chief economist, head of one of the bond desks, and member of the investment committee at PIMCO for many years. Earlier, we started talking uh, about Europe, and that leads to the Federal Reserve. So let's let's hold off on Europe and, and Japan, for that matter, and talk about the financial crisis here and the Federal Reserve's response. So first question, what did the Fed get right? What did they do right that a lot of people don't seem to really understand? I think the Fed has done a huge amount of things that are right ever since the financial crisis. I mean, I can argue uh, with some of the technical details of this, that, or the other, but the broad thrust of monetary policy ever since the financial crisis has been spot on. So zero interest rate policy, quantitative easing, all of the regulation they've put into place, stress tests for the banks, You're you like all of that. Yeah, I'm a, a big believer that they did a mosaic of good things. And remember, the, the regulatory side of things is not just the Federal Reserve. Sure. There's, you know, you have Dodd-Frank, you have SEC, you have a whole bunch of other, the FDIC, there are a whole bunch of other regulatory agencies. Yeah, I- exactly. We now have an FSOC, so therefore we have, you know, this uh, collection of regulatory agencies and the Fed's part of that. But from pure monetary policy, uh, I think they have been spectacular. And uh, I want to speak to quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Um, and quantitative easing has two impacts. One, which is what the market tends to focus on, is the sheer supply-demand effect. That the balance pre- sheet the balance $4 sheet, trillion. Dollars. They're buying duration out of the marketplace, which was, you know, the— uh, uh, the notion that somehow they're going to balloon their balance sheet and we're going to have, you know, hyperinflation. Right. Those, Collapse of the dollar, hyperinflation, $5,000 gold, yeah, all of none that, of which came true. All of that nonsense. And that's the only thing I can say politely about it that we heard six years ago uh, was nonsense. And those who were spouting it owe the world an apology and they owe Ben Bernanke personally an apology. When you're in a liquidity trap, uh, you go to zero for interest rates. Nothing much happens in the private sector right. because the private sector is delevering. So you do what's next, which is quantitative easing, which has an impact in directly pulling down um, long-term interest rates. But the bigger impact of quantitative easing is a commitment device for forward guidance. Because forward guidance is a new tool that the Fed's been using. We're at zero, and we're going to stay at zero for an extended period of time or until we do this. Quote, unquote. That was literally the language that the Fed used. Because the bond market is nothing more than a forward curve on expected Fed policy 
plus a risk premium. So therefore, forward guidance is reinforced by quantitative easing. And if there was ever any question about that, it was last year with the whole taper uh, issue. And the Fed said, well, we're thinking about tapering and the market went crazy and said the next thing that's going to happen is the Fed is going to hike short-term interest rates. Uh, and the Fed had to do a great deal of communications work to say, no, we're still at zero. Taper but means tapering off the purchases of bonds, not tapering away from zero. Right. But, but the fact that we had that experience underscores the notion that the power, for me anyway, of QE was as a commitment device. As long as we're doing QE, QE, there is zero discussion of getting off of zero. So the moment they said, we're going to taper QE, people said, well, now we need to start contemplating when they're going to get off of zero. And the Fed had to massage uh, the market psychic on the whole thing. So I think zero is right. I think QE was right. I think the regulatory things they did were right. Working in tandem with Treasury on TARP was right. Uh, they and, saved us from another Great Depression is your a, position. Absolutely. And I, I hear, by the way, I hear heads exploding all over the audience listening. Um, so let me ask you two questions and see if those people <laughs> can settle down that are related to this. First, we have the September meeting coming up. Should we still be at zero today? Should we have moved off of zero previously? Harder I question. I don't know what the FOMC is going to do in September. The case for getting off of zero is not because we have an incipient inflationary problem. Clearly. It is simply not. I look at getting off zero as declaring victory and getting out of the liquidity trap. Or put differently, a valedictory of graduating uh, with the Fed being at the top of the class, <laughs> getting out off of zero. Uh, uh, and actually, I think the Fed should get extraordinary applause for getting us out of a liquidity trap because the textbook that I studied and you studied said in a liquidity trap, when the private sector is delevering, you should use fiscal policy uh, to stimulate aggregate demand. Yeah, that that was the argument that since Congress had abandoned their traditional role, you look at the 2000, 2001 recession, uh, there was a huge fiscal stimulus, huge tax cuts, yeah. huge spending increases. They were AWOL. The Fed was pretty much the only game in town, weren't they? They were the only game in town, and they didn't want to be. But if you're the only game in town and you have a congressional mandate to avoid another depression, you do what you can do. It doesn't mean that you like it. I don't think Ben Bernanke liked doing some of the things that he had to do, but effectively it was the only thing that he could do consistent with his mandate. So let's take the counterfactual on that. Assume Bernanke listened to people who said, the Fed was going to cause hyperinflation, collapse of the dollar, and five thousand dollar gold. Assume he said they were right and say, you know what? Uh, Taylor Rule says we should be at two and a half or three and a half percent Fed funds rate, and there's no QE. What would have happened then? We've had a modern day depression, similar to the '30s, 1930s. I don't, I don't know if it'd be similar to the '30s. That's why I said 
modern day because the dominant thing back during the 30s is we didn't have deposit insurance. So right. We had a total collapse of the banking system, but it would have been a modern day depression that would have been self-feeding and would have had elements of what's been going on uh, in the last five to seven years in Southern Europe. So our, our unemployment rate peaked at around 10%. Our underemployment rate peaked at around 16%. The Great Depression, 25% unemployment. What would have happened this time around um, had there been no ZERP or no QE? And again, those of you whose heads are about to explode, uh, I apologize. Again, it, it, the counterfactual is really difficult. Unemployment would have been dramatically higher, 15 20%. I really? have no problem with that whole wow. notion because when we were at the depths of our recession, we were not self-correcting. We were self feeding. It took... Meaning it's a vicious cycle downwards. Exactly. And remember, uh, the Fed went to zero uh, and started QE four months, five months before the stock market finally found right. a bottom... Uh, March 09. Uh, March 09. Uh, so... I mean, normally you think in terms of Wall Street responds pretty quickly to, you know, warm and fuzzies from the central bank. Right. Uh, but if it takes that long for Wall Street to recognize they've been given a gift, uh, it tells you something is seriously wrong with the underlying economy. So it's kind that of- That plus the panic that was there really fed upon each yeah, other. Yeah, it was, you know, it, uh, it was truly a nefarious downward spiral that- the private sector simply did not have the ability to deal with itself. The the thing that st stood out to me at that time is when you have the CEOs of companies like General Electric and Walmart and Ford calling the White House saying, we're not going to make payroll because our credit sources have disappeared. You got to do something. That is a pretty serious situation. Yeah, it, it's, it had elements, if you will, of what happened during the Great Depression uh, in the money market sector. Because remember, one of the programs that uh, the uh, Federal Reserve did was the commercial paper funding facility. Mm -hmm. The commercial paper market, which is where big companies and small companies and a great deal of the shadow banking system as well, was funding itself, literally Froze shut yep. down. Uh, and GE is one of the biggest issuers of commercial paper right. at that juncture in existence. So when you shut down the commercial paper market, you're talking about shutting down access to working capital, which is payroll, uh, which is very similar to what happened back in the 1930s. So rather than having a run on the conventional banking system, we had a run on the shadow banking system and the Fed had to stop it or else it would have continued to self-feed us into a depression. So if you want to hear our conversation continue, be sure and check out uh, our podcast extras on Bloomberg.com, SoundCloud, and Apple iTunes. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to our podcast extras. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and my guest today, I say this every week, but it's really true. My special guest this week <laughs> is Paul McCulley. Paul and I um, first met, actually, 
up in Maine on a fishing trip, I want to say a decade ago. Is that yeah. right? Sounds right. I don't know if you recall that particular uh, meeting, but we were not feeling a whole lot of pain, you especially. <laughs> and um, let's see if I can refresh your recollection with this. You had mentioned you only went to a couple of conferences each year, that one in Jackson Hole, and you gave me a reason why, which had something to do with a trillion dollars worth of bonds. And my answer to you was, yeah, but it's fixed income. That stuff runs itself. And you exploded at me. I, I can't remember what my wise acre response was, but I'm sure I had one. It's Scott, Scott Frew at Rockingham Capital can, can probably fill in the blanks. <laughs> but I've, I've known you ever since, and it's always, uh, it's always educational. It's always fun um, speaking with you. I always learn something new. Before the break, in, in the last, I shouldn't say before the break, in the last section on radio, we were talking about the Fed and what the Fed got right and what the Fed got wrong. And there are a lot of people who really are infuriated at what the Fed has done. And they're promising us for now for five or six years, but it's coming just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. They're promising us a giant disaster. Why are they wrong? There are lots of economic reasons that they're wrong. Uh, notably, that monetary expansion, uh, as well as zero interest rates, are not going to have a huge stimulative effect on the economy and a liquidity trap. So I can give you all— And that's the same reason why there's no hyperinflation. Exactly. Wages are flat to falling. Commodity prices are falling. The the time to think about inflation was when the—from do- 01 to 08, I, I have a chart up on the website. I've, I've posted this, like, every other year for 10 years— from 01 to 08, the U.S. dollar fell 41%. Coincidentally, apparently, oil went from 20 to 150, food went through the roof, milk, meat, everything went crazy in a collapsing dollar environment. Now the dollar is the uh, the cleanest shirt in the hamper. I yeah. think that was Bill's uh, phrase. So how are you going to have hyperinflation in that environment? You, you simply are not. Forget uh, hyperinflation. How are you going to have regular yeah, I mean, inflation? I mean, the, the Fed's struggling to get up to its 2% target. So I, as, an, as an economist, I've always been befuddled, quite frankly, uh, at those at the uh, extreme. And I call them the extreme. Uh, and I guess it's probably grounded in monetarism. You print money, there's going to be inflation without understanding the context in which you are printing money. Uh, so it's really befuddled me as an economist that other side of the uh, of the divide. Uh, as a money manager, it was delightful because you just knew the guy was categorically wrong. Created a lot of opportunity. A- absolutely. So your personal portfolio, not all gold and silver miners, is that what you're telling me? You <laughs> no, own sir. a lot of physical gold, don't you? You have bars stacked away? Not, not any. No, no Krugerrands. Not a n- zero. Franklin Mint. Nada. Not your thing. Nada. Uh, so, uh, so actually, I just so, see. I could feel the hate mail coming, yes. and we're not even live on yeah, the air. So, so, right? so I, so economically, I've never been able to understand that camp. But thinking in terms of human nature, some may call it, you know, behavioral economics. Sure. Um, I do have a thesis. Let's hear it. Uh, which is that people looked at the 
huge expansion in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. You, we all saw those charts with the giant hockey stick. Yeah. They went from a trillion to four trillion dollars. Yeah. That they look at that chart as the moral equivalent of a fat man in Speedos. It's just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. On I can't so tell you why it's wrong, but it's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> the fat man in Speedos. I resemble that remark. Um, <laughs> although, although um, I'm I, quite sure you would be shot. By your family, if you ever showed up in Speedos, and I would too. By the way, if, when you go to beaches in the Mediterranean, yeah. in Europe, like at least in the United States, people <laughs> wear the surfer shorts. Absolutely. They, they, over there, it's Speedos, and those guys apparently uh, have a Fed balance sheet of their own to worry about. So so let's get back to what <laughs> these guys are, are getting wrong. So it's not economically defendable. We haven't seen it in the real world. Are we? Is that theory? Is that thesis? And I'm asking you an impossible question. Right. Is that thesis gonna just eventually fade away, or are these guys consistently, you know, the gold pops up every 20 years as an investment <laughs> and then goes away for a while. But if you catch it right, it's a fantastic trade. Yeah. Actually, I think they will be perpetually wrong in their forecast of nefarious consequences, but I do think there's something that's important in this public discussion, if you will, which is the role of monetary policy in the mosaic of government and the role of monetary policy relative to fiscal policy and macroeconomic uh, fine tuning. So, let's, so, so let's, I, th I think there's a lot of substance there. Uh, in fact, two of the very long 80 plus page scholarly papers I wrote uh, during my retirement years while I was at the GIC uh, were on particularly this issue of the monetary fiscal policy mix in a liquidity trap. Uh, so, I think I do understand. Uh, a sense of resentment, if you will, that this institution that is ostensibly apolitical was the only game in town uh, and therefore had to play the role it did. Now, I actually think that the Fed did a wonderful job of playing the role that was foisted up right. on them. Uh, so those who were forecasting the opposite were wrong. But I think the issue of where does monetary policy fit in the mosaic of overall government policies is a legitimate source of discussion. So, I really do. So, so let's, let's talk about Lord Keynes and his findings and why so many people don't seem to have learned the lessons he taught, and I, I look at it as a willful misunderstanding of Keynes. Uh, I speak to a, I have a lot of conservative friends who insist the budget deficit is caused by Keynesian economics, uh, and, and my answer is, well, yeah, if you only listen to the first half of it, the second half of it says, hey, in an expansion, the government should step out of the way and let the private sector take. That's when you raise taxes, lower spending, balance the budget, and get out of the way. The politicians, though, don't want to do that. No, no they don't. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure out why 
Keynes is still a four-letter word in a lot of circles. Uh, when Keynesian policies have been precisely what ultimately have been employed to get us out of the liquidity trap and are still being employed. And I, I have a thesis on this, Barry, is that I think a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of people in our business don't understand the difference between microeconomics and macroeconomics. I think a lot of people in our business look at macroeconomics as simply the summing up of microeconomics. Microeconomics mm -hmm. being, you know, old-fashioned supply-demand. Right. Uh, well, it you know, takes and, place on a transactional on basis. On a transaction-by-transaction transaction basis. The commodity pits, you know, in Chicago are the ultimate, you know, microeconomics. They haven't been replaced by algos yet? Are they still actually? Uh, I thought I, they were done. Maybe they are. I haven't actually been on the pit in a long, long time. But I think a lot of people think in terms of macro is simply the summing up of, of micro. And so, it's a whole lot more than that. And macro is not the summing up of micro. It is an entirely different uh, discipline. And macro is defined by the paradox of aggregation. And I'm getting wonky here, but this is hugely important, so, I think. So, listen, we have a wonky audience. If they're with us this late into the podcast, they'll appreciate it. So explain what people don't understand about macro and explain what Keynes got right and why people should listen to him. Okay. You, you have 45 minutes begin. <laughs> Actually, I have a three-hour lecture on this one, but... Um, the key difference between micro and macro is what is rational for the individual. Mm -hmm. If all individuals do so at the same time is irrational for the community. Such as the paradox of thrift? The paradox of thrift is the textbook one that you would explain. It's that, um, that it's quite okay for you to rationally say, I need to spend less and save more. In fact, Balance my budget, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. In fact, most of us have preached this to our children at some juncture. You know, the, you know, the, the, the virtues of thrift, you know, mm -hmm. God and all this sort of thing, the virtues of thrift. However, it is a fact that one man's spending is another man's income. So therefore, if we all decide to spend less and save more at the same time, we collectively kill our collective income, which is the fountain from which savings flow. Another example. That's, that's perfectly rational. Who could disagree with that? But people don't want to go to that logical conclusion because then it, you are saying, well, are you saying that thrift is a bad thing? Economic and, thrift, not virtuous thrift, not right. and not the, biblical thrift. We're talking about exactly, and and quite frequently, religion and economics get uh, melded. Uh, quite quite frequently, economics is a religion, and it becomes a problem. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Which brings us to the naked hatred of Keynes. How did that come about? I don't understand it. He seems to make sense. So wait, when the economy slows down enough and aggregate demand is weak, the government replaces private sector spending. And when the opposite happens, the government steps out of the way and, and allows private sector spending to do whatever it wants. That History has shown us that's a pretty reasonable model to operate under. The, the, more, the older I get, 
the more I accept the proposition that self-evident truths are frequently not self-evident to the masses. Well, write a book. <laughs> well, that, that, that's absolutely true. Write a book and you're like, okay, this is now resolved. And the biggest frustration of writing a book is now that I've settled this question, discovering that you really haven't settled that question. I've uh, only written one book in my lifetime, and I don't think I will write another one. That was actually around the time I met you in 2006, which was uh, when I had an incredible day job. So it was quite a task to try to produce a book at that juncture. So I don't anticipate writing another one. Now you have all the spare time in the world. You should be cranking out a book a year. Yeah. Our friend John Malden writes a book a month. You should keep up with John. <laughs> have no desire to do that whatsoever. And I think in terms of, of I think, the single best evangelist for right thinking in macro uh-huh. is Paul Krugman. Okay. And Paul does an absolutely fantastic job of trying to explain the difference between micro and macro, trying to explain the ISLM model. And he, Paul is incredibly articulate and uh, prolific, and he pulls his hair out trying to convert the unconvertible. See, uh, we've had Paul as a guest. I don't think he pulls his hair out. I think he understands this. By the way, send your hate mail to paulmcculley at pimco.com. Uh, that That's way. Paul McCulley at pimco.com. Uh, actually, it will be rejected. Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> ah, okay. You, you ruined it. Ah, sorry, Oh, man. no, it's paul.mcculley at pimco.com. <laughs> so, um, look, the, uh, I, mean, I mean, if Paul Krugman can't uh, make headway in explaining the obvious that I have to bow to the impossibility of doing it because there's nobody better at the pen than Paul Krugman. So, so, you know, we, we were at a um, an event once and we were talking. I, I do the weekly column. I do two co two personal finance columns a month for the Washington Post. He does two columns a week for the New York Times, and I I ask him, how much time do you put in each column? Thinking he's going to say an hour or two. He said. He goes, ah, 8 to 12 hours, and I fell off my chair, and I'm like, I got a lot of work to do. So he, when the reason he his columns are as tight and well-written, and he really pounds away on uh, less than a 1,000 words, and he's spending 12 hours on them, it's, it's amazing to me. It is much more difficult to write. 800 words than right. 8,000. I apologize for the length of the letter. I didn't have time, time to make write it a short. short one. Yeah, it's a, it's absolutely the case. So since we're in, in the wonky phase of, of the show, what's the difference between Keynesianism and Neo-Keynesianism for people who may not understand the nuances there, including me? Neo-Keynesianism... It's simply Keynes updated for new information, new techniques of analysis. There's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, I'm sure that you could have an academic to debate. You know, Noah the Smith is the guy to, to uh, fine tune this. Uh, to, to fine tune the, the whole sort of thing. It's you know, what constitutes a fat man in speedos? I mean, I'm sure you could have people debate the whole issue, but you know, I kind of know one when I see one. Okay. <laughs> That 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 is the same definition that we had of uh, <laughs> of pornography. So um, so we let's bring this back to the to the Fed, um, or or even more interestingly, let, let's talk about the financial crisis. Why 
what should have been the response from Congress? And the counterargument to, to saying we, we didn't have a Keynesian response, you had an $800 billion TARP. Right. You had all sorts of bailouts for different entities. You had the FDIC and the Fed working overtime. Yep. Can can you make the argument that we had a traditional Keynesian response? You had elements of a Keynesian response, actually, in the fiscal stimulus package. TARP was not part of the fiscal stimulus package. That, so it's TARP plus, and, and uh, yeah. Krugman has argued that the stimulus was too low by an order of magnitude. And I certainly agree with him on that. I mean, Larry Summers used to, you know, talk, you know temporary, uh, timely, and targeted. Uh, the three T's, mm -hmm. uh, and and this was none of that. It, it may have been timely, but unfortunately, it was temporary. Uh, I'm not sure it was particularly well targeted. Uh, so it's better than nothing, right? Uh, but just barely. But but just barely. And then in 2010, we went the other direction when uh, the Tea so, Party hijacked the country. So we had the sequester, we had... Which was, you know, absurdity squared. But isn't that what's going on today in, in Europe? Aren't, uh, absurdity squared. That's all I can say, man. So It makes so, absolutely no sense whatsoever in that, you know, it's recommending a starvation diet for an anorexic. But it's it makes work, no sense. It's working out for Greece, isn't it? Is, aren't they doing fantastic? <laughs> I mean, Greece is doing well. Right, they're, they're on their third bailout. They only have 25% unemployment. It's not the worst thing in the world. And um, their GDP has been, what, down? Their GDP, this is fascinating to me, the GDP of Greece is now worse than the GDP of the United States in the 20s and 30s, in the, in the Great Depression, post-crash Great Depression. Someone said that. I haven't verified it, but I don't doubt it for a second. Well, we, we don't need any more data to support the thesis that austerity and a liquidity trap is stupid. Uh, You're letting facts get in the way of a, a, a narrative, and, and those people don't really care for um, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, we just have to go back to, you know, Forrest Gump. You know, stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> so if you could get the ECB, if you were speaking to the ECB, what would you say to them? Actually, I have no particular problem with the ECB doing what they're doing uh, right now. Uh, the ECB is... What about Angela Merkel, then? Is she the one you need to chastise? Because people thought Bush was giving her a massage, but I think he was trying to strangle her. Got no comment on that. What I will say is that the German perspective that everybody should be just like Germany mm -hmm. is a paradox of aggregation. Because if everybody was just like Germany, then we would start to have to trade with Mars because right. Germany runs chronically a surplus on trade right. with everybody else. And double entry bookkeeping requires if one person runs a surplus, there's Somebody else has got to run a deficit. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game. So if Germany says everyone should be like us, I want to know where the other side of the that. trade is. Uh, Germany actually absorbs global aggregate demand as opposed to contributing to it. The, the theory that's been out there for a while is that the Eurozone and the Euro have essentially worked to the benefit of Germany. Um, someone called it Berlin's Revenge. 
And um, uh, you know, as much as they're hard on Greece, this has really been something that was constructed by and for the Germans more than anything else. I think the better part of valor would, for me would be not to comment on that. What I will say is that the euro is a lot weaker than would be the case if the club med countries were not in the euro. The which euro would, is weaker. To, oh, so in other words, if we lose Italy... Greece. Excuse me, the, the euro would be a lot stronger, stronger. than it is right now. Right. And so Germany benefits from the fact that its currency is drugged down by its neighbors. So the exporting machine called Germany mm -hmm. uh, benefits in some respects because there are other people in the house uh, that are making the currency weaker than would otherwise be the case, you know, and I think we've all played, you know, the, the counterfactual game in our brain. Suppose you had, you know, the weaker countries of the Euro exit, and I, that's not a forecast. I don't think right. they're going to happen, period. Not but, even Greece. No, uh, that would not be my base case scenario. But uh, if they were to exit and effectively the Euro became the mark, how much stronger would it be? And the answer is much a lot. Yeah, much. And that would not be great for Germany's export business. Exactly. Although, you know. So that's the only thing I would say is I think they are the beneficiaries of a weaker currency than would be the case in the absence of the problems down south. So so how does, let's stay in Europe. So how does the European problems play out? Does Greece ever recover? Is there ever going to be, a, the real question is, is there ever going to be a haircut for the lenders to these insolvent nations uh, that or a default that allows them to move, you know, Argentina, you, South America, Mexico? You look at all the defaults we've seen over the decades. It's the first step to healing yourselves. You, all right, we got rid of these debt. Now we're going to have to pay more to borrow, but at least we're out from under that. Let's reboot. Let's start over. Is that a possibility in Greece? Or are they just saddled with more debt than they I, could deal I wish deal I with? could come up with a good scenario for Greece. I really do. Um, Grexit and the drachma. That's, yeah, that's my scenario. Yeah. And I, I think we've all, you know, run that through our brains and say, you know, it's, it's, it's hell between, you know, for the next two years to get there. Because it would actually take two years to reestablish right. a currency and a banking system and all of that sort of stuff. So it would be a two-year period of hell. But on the other side, there may be a story of redemption. But I don't think that is— No one wants that pain. No, no one makes that pain. And I don't think there would be, quote-unquote, an official type of default because that would be too much embarrassment for too many people. Um, so I think it's uh, more of a— roundabout type of default. And an example, suppose when you graduated from college, you had a buddy who owed you 200 bucks. Right. Uh, you could declare an event of default and say, hey, pal, you owe me 200 bucks. We're graduating. We're out of here. Give me my 200 bucks. And if you're not, I'm going to take your car. You know, that would be declaring an event of default. Or you could say, uh, Harry, you know, when you got the 200 bucks, you know, give it back to me. You know, at your 30th year reunion, Harry gives you the 200 bucks. Okay. Now, was there a default there? Well, technically, yes, but it was eventually repaid. Yeah, it was 30 when years it was, later. When it was worth reunion. a tenth of what it started at. Yeah, 
Exactly. So therefore, Harry kept his car. There was no embarrassment, you know, and you, you know, had a loan, you know, for 30 years for 200 bucks. The, the lenders had the, uh, the, the lenders absorbed the loss just over time, just over. Uh, yeah, but, but, but they save face uh, by doing it this way. Economically, uh, we always conclude, well, you know, let's just, you know, quit the pretense game and get here. But in the political world, pretense is a currency. Uh, and That's interesting. So pretense pret- is a currency. So, so pretense has to be managed, exploited, uh, and practiced. Uh, and you see it there. We actually see it a little bit south of here down in uh, Washington, D.C. I mean, when you see a congressman stand up and say about somebody on the other side of the aisle, my good friend. Right. What do you think, Barry? I don't think they're really friends. That's you don't? my that's my take. Are on. you a cynic? Um, <laughs> you know, the old joke is a conservative is a liberal who got mugged. A, a, a cynic <laughs> is an optimist who's been around for a while. Touche. So the Touché. same thing. So let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about Japan. Uh, the United States have wrapped up our QE program. It's now more or less running off, which is a question I keep getting from people for you. I'm going to say, come back to that. Yeah. What? So Japan, after, gee, it seems like decades. It has been. (laughs) Began a QE program, and their economy started to tick up. Their inflation rate in a tiny manner ticked up. Their stock market has moved substantially higher. What is going on with Japan and QE, and and what do we think the end game is going to look like for Japan over the next few years? I think the end game now is no end. Just QE forever? Could very well be, and I think that would be appropriate for Japan. Um, the irony of history here is it was only uh, less than two decades ago that the Bank of Japan got its political independence. Right. And conceptually, you want a independent central bank to cut off the fat tail of inflation. Japan right. has been living in the fat tail of deflation for right. all of our adult lifetime. Right. Assuming our adult lifetime has started, of course. And huh. uh, Well, let's s- just say the past 25 years. Yeah, the last 25 years. Uh, and the Bank of Japan, for a long period of time until the current administration, said, not our problem, not our problem. Uh, and now you actually have a forceful... Keynesian type of approach, uh, whatever it takes, with monetary policy being subservient to fiscal policy there. So I think they're doing the right things, um, but I'm not sure you're going to have you know any sort of you know bell ringing positive results besides the equity market. That right. was what that was one of the free trades of the century right. when they did that on the equity market. We should never confuse equity markets with the Main Street. Uh, right, two completely different things. What. Speaking of which, what about that consumption tax they put into effect, which really seemed to derail but, their but then, recovery? But, but, but then the next one, they said, you know, we're not going to do the next one. Uh, and uh, so, actually, I think Japan has a challenge, unlike the United States. Europe has a little bit of it, which is a demographic challenge. They're getting 
old. Very uh, fast. Very, very fast. Japan has a monster challenge. Ma- monster you know, challenge. I'm going to dig and, up. And, and the other thing is they don't have immigration. At uh, all. No, zero. Uh, like, so there, there are very, very few non-Japanese in Japan. Yeah, so, so actually... I can, you know, put in the best macro Keynesian policies possible, but if you've got a shrinking population, it's very difficult. And Europe has some element of that, whereas the United States uh, doesn't have a shrinking population. We have the best birth rate of the industrialized we have, world. We have a good birth rate, and also we have uh, an open uh, perspective about immigration. immigration. We're a nation of immigrants. It's uh, not a surprise. And, uh, what is it, a million legal immigrants a year, yeah. something like that? And actually, you know, on I'm not forecasting it um, as a nearby outcome, but actually I think enlightened immigration reform in the United States where we have robust immigration, not just on the historical model of family, but on the concept of skill set as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, could actually increase the potential growth rate of our economy. One, one of the biggest post-9-11 mistakes that was made, and there were many, was the shutting down of the HB1 visas yeah. for really qualified um, technology, grad student. In fact, people don't realize half of the C-suite population in Silicon Valley yeah. are foreign-born. and. We attract, or at least we used to, the best and brightest of these folks to come here for for the opportunities, and it's been an enormous economic boom, enormous positive for the United States. Yes, I mean one of the the ironies is that one of the the U.S. products that is universally sold around the world that is wonderful is our educational system. Mm-hmm. Call it, you know, higher education being one of our most profound exports, even though we actually do it here. Right here. Mm-hmm. We're selling the product to the foreign customer. The foreign customer comes here, Consumes does exceedingly it. well, and then we won't let him stay and keep a job here. It makes absolutely no sense. So this is a political issue. It's a political issue. And I do understand the political issue, which is that our immigration policy— has been based historically on family connections. You can bring family members over Not if you're already— Not based upon economics. We are a nation of immigrants. Uh, we can all trace our you know, origins back you know, to this country or the other. You know, My dad was Scotch-Irish. My mom was German. Uh, so there's the, that historical issue that uh, you earn the right by birth to be in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and— I think enlightened immigration reform is to is to preserve that legacy, which is a treasure for us, but also recognizing that we can have immigration policy that includes uh, having skilled people bring economic value to our country as well. Uh, so it's not to me it's not one or the other; it should be both. But anytime we talk about uh, reform of immigration, it seems like uh, the political system is, well, this is, if we do this, then we have to stop doing that. I think a blend of the two could be a very positive uh, sort of thing for the country. And probably for the first time this month, this week, this year, I may even sound like a Republican. God forgive me. 
So why haven't we been able to get this done? Why can't we get a rational... I mean, we all know what the answer is, but why can't we get a rational... This is something that both sides of the aisle, A, have an interest in, B, there's a huge overlap. I won't, I won't say they agree on, but that Venn diagram has a lot of common yeah. area. Well put, Venn diagram. I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that question uh, because you'd like to believe even though democracy is supposed to be inefficient, so I don't complain too much about inefficiency in Washington because that's how it was designed to be inefficient, but sometimes there's things that are so singularly obvious that should be done uh, that you would think they would get done. And Actually, after 9-11, there was one, which is outsourcing uh, airport protection to private companies. Ah, we said, no, maybe we should actually have Seems that be a stupid. government function. You know, I, I spoke to, we had Les Gelb as a guest recently, and um, one of the things he said that was really fascinating, so he, he, here's a guy, incredibly storied background, um, working for Senator Jacob Javits, a traditional liberal Northeast Republican, center-right. Very few of them exist anymore. Well, the Javits, <laughs> Javits is no longer with us. Right. That, that, that's completely gone. You know? But what he said was there were enough people who in the Senate that regardless of politics, that he didn't say Venn diagram, but that same Venn diagram where you and I may disagree about disagree about issues one, two, three, four, five, but gee, we totally agree about six through ten. So let's hold one through five aside and get six through ten done, right. and then we can see what we can figure out with one through five. According to him, that's gone away, and that's why this Congress has become such a do nothing Congress, and it's why he brings it back to the Fed. They became the only game in town. Yeah. Nothing was done. That's normally done. I'm not saying anything radical or new needed to be done. All of the traditional post-crisis fiscal things that you expect that happened as recently as 2000 just did not happen this time around. Yeah. it's um, As a citizen, which I am first and foremost these days as a retired man, I, I'm discouraged about the fact that Venn diagram, as you speak of, it's just not really working in obvious sort of places. Now, I don't think Congress could agree on Velveeta on white bread as a lunch sandwich anymore. I mean, where's uh, the debate about that? It's uh, The question is, is it a self-correcting mechanism? Is it going to get so extreme, is it going to get so bad that the throw-the-bums-out throw response is going to give us a, a fresh start? I don't know. Uh, people I, I, don't think it is. Some people think that it has to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, and actually that's one where I really don't have an informed opinion. The older I get, the more I recognize there are some areas I just won't ever be able to understand. Sausage making, Washington, uh, some it, things I will just never understand. It, it is what it is. So speaking of being a retired man, you, you give a speech a month. That's retired. You're not publishing. I know that you like to bowl. Uh, what what else are you doing? I travel a fair amount. Yeah, with with, with GIC, uh, there seems to be events constantly all around the world. And I and I travel with the GIC occasionally, but you know, a speech a month actually involves a trip a month usually. Right. Uh, and now that I'm retired, it's not just to go in. 
uh, and uh, uh, give the speech and go back to the airport. For instance, you know, what was it last fall? I had a speech down in Argentina and spent five days in Argentina. That's fun. That's fun. Uh, I actually have not been back to China since I retired. Mm -hmm. During my active career, uh, I uh, went to China on business 26 times. Really? Starting in 1993. So you've seen insane changes there. I've seen insane changes since uh, 1993. But what I haven't seen actually is the wall. Really, twenty six trips never. Yeah. So you need a you need a tourist trip to China. Yeah, and I, had, I, I was shooting the breeze with Bill Gross about it, and I said, Bill, I've been to China twenty six times and I've yet to see the wall. And he looked at me like, huh? How is that possible? How is that possible? And then I said, Bill, I was working for your company. Oh, now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and they you know in and out. So actually, the next time I get a invitation to a group that I want to speak to in China. I'm going to see that wall. So you'll you'll build in an extra week of uh, some tourist activities. Speaking of Bill Gross, so we talked a little bit about him professionally, but you guys are really buds. You hang out. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, particularly over the last um, year, eighteen months, uh, time at my home. Uh, You're in Newport Beach, uh, in Newport California. Beach. So he's, he's, which, by the way, for those of you who haven't been there, I'll, I'll put your address up on the website so. <laughs> People can stop by, but I found Newport Beach to be one of the. I gave a speech at the Newport Beach Public Library yep. Pimco series. Yep. Uh, I found Newport Beach to be one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in my life. It's spectacular. You know what it is? It's the Hamptons meets Fire Island. It's these big, gorgeous houses, but instead of being on two acre estates with giant hedges, it's like Fire Island. They're shoulder to shoulder right yeah. on the water. And what is the beach right on the other side of the body of water that's there? The There's a public park over there, something with a B, Bar. There's Balboa Island. Balboa Island, uh, which is also lovely. Yeah, in fact, my home is actually on Lido Island. Uh, which is off of Balboa or they're, off they're, of— they're uh, Actually, the Newport Harbor has uh, seven islands. Right. Uh, Balboa is a big one that's also a tourist place with lots of commercials. Right. Uh, Lido is strictly residential. There's not nothing commercial on Lido. And then there's Harbor Island. There's seven islands. Can you drive to that, or does it take a, a boat, a ferry actually, to get there, there? There's a bridge, so you right. can drive. There's one bridge to get onto uh, actually both islands. Um, there is a ferry to Balboa Island. There. I took that little. Uh, it took the, three minutes to get across. But there's the, not a ferry to Lido. Uh, Bill actually lives doesn't live in Newport Beach. He lives in Laguna Beach, uh, which is the closer next, to L.A. No, it's actually other close, direction. The other direction, I'm and, an a, and a beautiful guy. home overlooking uh, the ocean. I'm sure. Uh, and he and I actually bowl together in neither place. We bowl together in Fountain Valley, uh, which has the best bowling alley in the in the area. So you're telling me people walk into a bowling league, and there's Bill Gross and Paul McCulley bowling. It wouldn't be a leg, but if you come by on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock, you could very well run into me and Bill Bowling, yeah. Um, are you a good bowler? I'm a pretty good bowler. Uh, it's one of my things I like to do. I like to fish. I like to bowl. I, I know like you to, like to fish. I like to ride my bike, and I've bowled a lot more in recent years. I'm probably about a 190 average, something how, like how that. How about Gross? Is he a good bowler? Bill's a very good athlete. Really? Uh, he's not 
Uh, bowling has never been his particular sport. Uh, but when he started bowling with me, uh, he got progressively better. And, and, and I wouldn't venture what he uh, uh, would roll on an average because we don't roll enough that he would. Because I go two or three times a week. Come uh, on. You're kidding me. Yeah. And, not, and Bill and I go occasionally. Uh, but he's a, a very, very good athlete. Uh, and actually, uh, this goes back about five months ago. Uh, we actually went once with his wife, too. We had a great time mm -hmm. uh, when Sue went with us bowling. Uh, but once, uh, Bill, just to show how good an athlete he is, made the 6-7-10 split. I've been bowling for 30 years, and I've only made it three or four times. And he, as a rare bowler, I don't think he bowled you know, much in, you know, since you know, his kids were little, right. made the 6-7-10 split. So, every, you know... If you ever see him, just say, what did it feel like to make the 6-7-10 split? It's I, a nice feeling, let me tell you. I, I'm still hole-in-one sort of thing. I'm still... I'm still. It's, it's, it's kind of like a hole-in-one. I'm still wrapping my head around the um, the two of you bowling. That, that, that's a hard... <laughs> That's a hard um, image to, to get on. Do you so, think that's a picture that would make Bloomberg if someone took a snapshot? I, I, it absolutely would make Bloomberg. There's no doubt in my <laughs> mind. It is a just um, – I'm, I'm struck somewhat uh, speechless. So, so clearly your relationship goes way back. Would you consider, consider Bill Gross a mentor of yours? Yeah, I would. Um, Tell us about the early days when you said he's a guy who hired an unemployed kid. Uh, what what was that experience like? What was it like starting a job with a guy? Even then, he was fairly storied. He people were starting to know who he was. Yeah, this was nineteen ninety. Um, I think he engenders beer. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be a tough guy. If you're just a kid out of school, supposed to be a tough guy to work for. He is a tough guy to work for. He has uh, low tolerance for beating around the bush. When Doesn't he, suffer fools gladly. That's another way of putting it. If he asks you a question, he wants one of two things. A detailed, complete, accurate answer. Or, I don't know, sir. I'll be back to you tomorrow morning. If you can't give him one of those two answers but are somewhere in between... You Not have camper. a problem. Okay. There's no problem saying, Bill, I don't know. I'll have a memo on your desk tomorrow morning with a complete answer. You better have the memo on his desk tomorrow morning right. with a complete answer. That's a fine answer. If you have the answer in detail when he asks you, that's a great thing. What's not a good thing is to try to bluff him with bull stuff. Right. Uh, and I, I don't I take him as a guy who's a pretty good poker player, you probably don't want to bluff him. You don't want to bluff him. Uh, and also he has, um, this is an interesting aspect of, of Bill that very few people know. Uh, I mean, he's known as, you know, a tough boss. And he is tough. I think fair, but also a very tough boss. And he and I are very close, but he you know, still, you know, you know, in, in the latter years of my career, would go off on me sometimes, and I could go off back at him. That's the big difference because we had reached that right. you know, stage of, of friendship. Um, but he still, to this day, believes that all of his success is a function of the client, and he's absolutely marvelous with clients. He's really? not gruff 
and actually he is amazingly receptive to the fact that I'm rich because I'm delivering what the client wants. And if I don't know what the client wants, I shut up and I listen. Uh, so actually Bill's an amazingly good listener to clients uh, and is very good with clients. Uh, and uh, he's different uh, with employees who uh, are trying to blow smoke up his backside. Okay. But with clients, he's amazingly good. Um, who else would you count as, as mentors? Uh, obviously, uh, I never knew either John Maynard Keynes or Hyman Minsky, mm -hmm. but they had a profound impact on me intellectually. Uh, Bill Miller uh, of Lake oh, Mason really? fame uh, is a close personal friend and mentored me uh, in being able to fluently move back and forth between valuation in the bond market and valuation in the equity market. So huh. I learned a great deal from Bill Miller. I don't know if you've ever had Bill on as he, one of your guests, but you should. He's on my short list. You know what? Make the introduction. I would love to to have a conversation with him. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy. People don't... You know who else I know who is tight with him is Michael Mosebaum, uh, Mobison yeah. of Columbia and now um, formerly of Credit Suisse and... Or is he now at Credit Suisse, formerly of Leg Mason? But he's someone else who worked with Miller. Everything I've read about the guy, first of all, the streak is yeah. unprecedented. 15 consecutive years of beating the S&P 500. Some people are going to insist it's just random, but I don't know. That, that's just, there are too many fund managers for it to be one guy for 15 years. That That's really amazing. I mean, I mean he obviously was on the wrong side of the Minsky moment. Um but now is living a story of redemption and doing exceedingly well. He, he, the fund, at least the the you know the the two thousand the the crisis years hurt his long term total track record his batting average. But the past five years has been pretty darn good for him, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, they have. And it, the the word mentor is a very special word for me that I would not you know want to burden. Uh, a lot of people with are saying you've been a there have been a lot of people who've been influential uh, mm -hmm. in my thought process that I know personally uh, and so I'm not suggesting that I that, that there are you know not others as well uh, I have benefited enormously over a long period of time uh, from uh, um, from from Paul Krugman's work really uh, and so it's uh, Keynes Krugman Minsky yep Bill Miller, Bill Gross. Yeah. That that's a murderer's row right there. That's that's a, that's a pretty good group of people. Let let's talk about Minsky a little bit cuz I don't think people really know, especially lay people, don't know who Hyman Minsky was. He unfortunately passed away before his work started to be really recognized as as seminal as it is and I, I'm going to sum it up in a, a quick sentence which is stability begets instability. Let, describe that. Discuss that, because you've written more about Minsky, and you've probably done more to bring Minsky to the mainstream of economics than just about anybody else out there. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Minsky built upon what Keynes did. Uh, in fact, 
I can find most of what Minsky wrote about in Chapter 12 of the General Theory. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of my fun sort of things to ask people. What is your favorite chapter of the General Theory? Uh, mine is obviously Chapter 12, where effectively founded behavioral economics. And Minsky, uh, financial instability hypothesis, is very straightforward, uh, which is, as you put it, Stability breeds instability because it changes behavior. Changes people's risk appetite. Risk appetite. Uh, so I would say he's one of the founders of behavioral economics, uh, in contrast to the Chicago School that every decision or every transaction you make is based upon a full calculus of rationality. Right. Um, I don't know anybody of that nature that your decisions are a function or path dependent or a function of what has happened previously, and that human beings tend to put an extraordinary amount of focus on bad things having happened. So therefore, if nothing bad has happened for a while, mm -hmm. life has been stable, nothing bad's happening, then they ramp up their risk. But interestingly, when they're ramping up the risk, that means they're borrowing more money mm -hmm. and driving up asset prices. So that everyone says, well, that was really smart. More leverage is good. So <laughs> right. therefore, rinse. Until it's not. You know, lather, rinse, and repeat. Right. Uh, so essentially, a Minsky journey is uh, essentially lather, rinse, and repeat until something goes wrong. And when something goes wrong, it goes disastrously wrong and Minsky had a nice phrase for it is when essentially the guy who's become the most risk-seeking has to sell book to make book <laughs> I mean, now describe that in other words a person is highly leveraged in assets that are suddenly no longer going up and generates either a margin call or some other factor exactly that leads to they were a buyer, now they're a, a leveraged buyer, right? and now they're a deleveraging seller. Yeah, and if, if, I guess around what we were talking about, fire sales. But I just always love that Minsky phrase, you have to sell book to make book. In Otherwise, it means satisfy your margin Right. In, in order to stay <laughs> solvent, you have to start liquidating positions. And, and, and then you get into the paradox of aggregation of everybody is selling book to make book. Where's the bid? Where's the bid? So uh, so that's it's funny because I love how different people I speak to it's the six blind men describing the elephant yeah. where you end up with the a, a very very different perspective of some aspect of Wall Street but you're really saying the same thing. So you know Rob Arnott, right? Yep. So well. Rob, Rob was one of our earliest guests and one of the things he describes when when you're looking at uh, a market if you're actually if you're actually in a traditional market cap based index what happens yep. courtesy of minsky towards the end of that bull cycle is everybody is piling in and they're piling into fewer and fewer names yep. and so what happens in the end of that cycle is you have this huge huge spasm up and then this giant collapse down, and because you're in cap-weighted equities, exactly. you end up having a much worse downdraft than you would have if that index was yeah. created not cap-based. Yeah. Cap it's a genius, and I, I use the word on purpose, genius of what Rob has done with his fundamental indexes. Uh, oh, I forget. You guys, uh, 
so for those of you who haven't listened to the R Not interview, strongly recommend go to iTunes, pull it down. It's really fascinating. But not only does his models run a hundred plus, or maybe it's closer to two hundred plus billion dollars now based on his right. models, but he also was running almost a hundred billion dollars of Pimco um, assets. I don't know what it, what what that number is now. Maybe it was eighty million, if I remember yeah, correctly, and, and, using his math and Pimco's asset management. Yeah, he was uh, actually he's expanded his relationship with Pimco since. Uh, I retired the second time, so I, I actually don't know exactly the nature of it. It's, he does a, uh, a lot of asset allocation as well right. as his fundamental indexes. Very, very smart man. And actually, one of the, I've known Rob for a long, long time. Uh, we go back to, you know, uh, I don't know, 20 years or something uh, of that nature, you know, just as fellow wonks. And even when he and I vehemently disagree on something, we enjoy having a discussion because we learn from each other, and that's the fun part of this business. I, I describe him as a rational conservative. Is that, <laughs> actually, is that, that, is that is a, a fair very, description? That's a very very good way of putting it. Because he's data-driven. You may disagree with him about something, yeah. but you're never going to say, ah, this guy's a wing nut, he's just making stuff up. No. When I disagree with Rob about something, it forces me to go back and say, Bingo. let me think about this, because if he's saying this... There's going to be some data underneath, and there's going to be an analysis, and then you have to find either where he's off a little bit in his trajectory, and that's what sent him down the wrong road, or where your belief system has a flaw in it. And yeah. not a lot of people can do that in a way that is, oh, you know, uh, there's got to be something to that. Yeah. In fact, the longer we are in this business, probably also reflects age as well, Speak for yourself. I'm not aging. Yeah, I know. You're, it's I'm still sim- 27. You're still tw- 27 all day long. <laughs> um, the more, from the standpoint of debate and discussions, mm-hmm. is it's all about wanting to gather with people who help you think. It's not a matter whether or not they're right or wrong, but who challenge your so intellectual horsepower. We see that with the guys we hang out with fishing, you know, over the years. And we have vehement disagreements, but part of having a disagreement is it forces you to think, did I miss something? I'll, I'll did tell I miss you, something? I'll tell you two guys. Well, there's, there's a whole run of guys up at Camp Kotak. Yeah. I mean, I'm friends with Rosie for years. Yeah. And he and I are often on the opposite sides of stuff. But he forces me, yep. like it's, uh, he makes my arguments better because he forces me <laughs> to go back and come up with specific responses. To, what about this? What about that? Exactly. And he's also a walking inside. You could say, uh, what was the non-farm payrolls in October, you know, 2003? And he'll have oh, yeah. that answer. He's amazing. So, so that becomes a real challenge to debate him because he can pull stuff like like nobody. Uh, Stu Taylor of Eaton yep. Vance is another one who I've never enjoyed disagreeing with someone more yeah. than Stu because we're often on the opposite sides of stuff, and he'll lay out an argument, and it's not just, you know, uh, the global warming guys are crazy, and they're, everything they say, the assumptions built in are all factually wrong, and it's just, you can't, you know, I love the famous quote, never try and teach a pig to sing, it wastes your time and annoys the pig. <laughs> Hold that yeah. aside. When when I disagree with Stu Taylor or Dave Rosenberg yeah. or Doug Cass is another one. Doug yep. and I are almost always 
on the opposite sides of the equity trade. But he makes me go back and defend the position because now sometimes we're just looking at different timelines, but other times he's making an argument. Hey, here's where the sentiment is. You're you're bullish. I'm bearish. Look at this. Look at that. And you have to really go back and very carefully take those arguments apart. It, it's fascinating. And there's no doubt in my mind, Rob Arnott, absolutely. I, I've begotten to known over the years a little bit Cliff Asness, who is another like Rob. Yep. Brilliant guy, brilliant mathematician, but also can speak English in a coherent fashion, which is relatively, again, the Venn diagram of those two, yeah. that's a smaller overlap. He's another guy that, for, I disagree with him, but if Asna says something that I disagree with, man, I have to go back and say, um, gee, what am I doing here that he disagrees with? What assumptions do I have? Where is the model wrong? Where is the conclusion not supported by the data? Because he doesn't just on a whim say something. There is always a massive amount of research and data underlying what, what he does. But, you know, that's what makes a market. Different people see things from different perspectives. And the guys we really respect are the ones who make you defend yourself and make you make better arguments. Yeah. I, mean, I li like to I agree with you wholeheartedly. I like to think of it as intellectual fellowship. Absolutely. I like the word fellowship uh, in that you're not having a fight. You're not having an argument. You're having an intellectual fellowship. You know, it's, you know, uh, and that, you know, you can be fishing, you could be bowling, whatever the case may be, or, you know, a fine meal, uh, and that you enjoy each other's company. It's not about the process of, you know, tit for tat, I got this one right, you got that one wrong. It's just, do we enjoy each other's fellowship? Do, do you appreciate the qualities of their minds? And exactly. that And that's a really that's um, interesting thing. Let's, let's go over some of my favorite um, questions before we uh, lose what's left of our, our listeners. Although I get emails all the time that people say, you know, I drive back and forth to Boston. I listen to the <laughs> podcast in each direction or I spend an hour each day on the on the treadmill and, and you've made my <laughs> um, life easier. But these are some of the questions um, that I ask every guest. And some of them you've asked answered. You've answered what you did before you were at PEMCO, um, who your early mentors were. I think we know what philosophers and economists affected your approach to um, economics. What investors, uh, you mentioned Bill Millers, what investors uh, affected your f f investing philosophy? And I guess we can include Keynes in that because he was running money, wasn't he? Yeah, he was running. Keynes College, I think he was running money for, their endowment. Yeah, I, um, in that category, it wouldn't be a large group of people, and and Bill Gross would be so much in a league by he, him. He's the sun, and there's a bunch of other planets. And there's maybe. a bunch of other planets, uh, and you could do worse than Bill Gross. And, I can and, tell you. And, and Bill's general philosophy, and I'm sure he's you know he's been public about it. So I'm not talking out of school whatsoever. Is uh, it's a bit like you know gambling. And I simply want to win more than I lose. Mm -hmm. I don't have the objective of winning all the time. And I want to calculate the odds in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I want to avoid 
gamblers run. He's, Never he's let just, a mistake take you out of the game. Longevity matters. And he, that philosophy um, is a humbling philosophy because you can say, this one, I know I got this one. But never make a mistake that can take you about the game. And Bill Gross was the guy who fundamentally drove that into my head. Just in sizing of bets, of sizing in a portfolio, uh, and no tears that if you should have made it bigger, no. You shouldn't have made it bigger because, that, it, because if you were wrong, it would have taken you out. He, he discussed that extensively when he was here. It was quite, quite fascinating and you wouldn't think a guy running fixed income would be really that kind of, You know, if you're running managed futures, those guys blow up pretty regularly. Yeah. You read uh, Education of a Speculator, uh, Niederhofer has blown up, you know, uh, a number of times. It's really surprising coming from the fixed income side. Well, a key issue on the fixed income side is that you're playing for a small alpha versus the benchmark. Mm-hmm. You can't get 10-baggers in fixed income very easily. Right. So actually, it's not like you're going to be taken out of the game because you lost all of your clients' money. It's if your alpha shrinks, then in your next competition to get a client, you're not going to be as successful. And also, there's a very pragmatic matter is defending your fees is a function of... Of the alpha you create. Alpha absolutely. And so therefore... In fixed income, your alpha is your potential alpha is not huge to begin with, uh, and so therefore there's a lot of risk to both the growth of your business and your profit margins uh, if you actually don't size your bets right. So the philosophy of gambler of gamblers run holes, even though the stakes are different because the stakes uh, uh, are idiosyncratic to that business. Uh, uh, make, makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned uh, the general theory. What other books do you find to be um, influential? What are the key books that you you've that have affected you when you've read them? Peter Bernstein, uh, Against the Gods, mm-hmm. uh, would be right at the very top of my must-read list when uh, young really? graduates are asking. And uh, Peter was a dear personal friend of mine. Uh, we lost him a few years ago, uh-huh. uh, and amazing sweetheart of a man, and brilliant. Uh, so, I was, and essentially, his he had the best. He was a wonderful writer. He also uh, that book is consistently on the everybody's top twenties list. Yeah, yeah, it's top top twenties. So I would put that that book uh, in there. Along and with Keynes' general theory of employment. general theory and obviously, you know, Minsky's work. Uh, Which Minsky book? Uh, Stabilizing the Unstable Economy. Okay. Because uh, what I'm going to end up doing, for those of you listening to this, I'll put this up in the on the, on the the blog post and I'll have the list of all the books you mentioned. So we have Keynes, we have Minsky, we have Bernstein. Bernstein. And I'll give you a, a fourth, and it's a very recent addition to... My list. Let's see. Literally in the last six, nine months. Really? Okay, let's hear this. And it's not about economics per se. It's former Congressman Barney Frank's autobiography. Really? It is an amazing treatise. 
on understanding Washington. D.C. D.C. over the last 30 years of the whys and the wherefores of outcomes that have always left us scratching our head. That's a fascinating... If you haven't read Barney's book, you've got to get it. Uh, it A Life in Politics from Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage? Bingo. No kidding. This just came out in March of this year. Yeah. That that's really quite amazing. So that's a newbie. And, that's a newbie. And you are, you're saying that it's not so much about the political battles; it's about the process in D.C. and how it's changed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you and I could write a book about you know Wall Street for the last thirty years because we lived it. Uh, well, you're a little younger than I am, but you know, not a whole lot <laughs> not, younger than you. Uh, but you know, I, I, I work for a living. That's the difference. You're gainfully retired. <laughs> yeah. What 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 are you like? You're four years older than me. I'm that's 58. all you are. Uh, so you're five years older than me. Big uh, deal. So th- that is a new gem mm-hmm. that I would recommend to anybody who wants to to consider themselves informed in what makes Washington work. Wow. That or or, or not as the case. Or may not be. work. So now, so the Frank book discusses what's changed in D.C. over the thirty years. Let let me ask you the book that you're not going to write. How has Wall Street and finance and the practice of investing money changed over that same time period? Uh, I mean, really, the, the profound change since I came to, to Wall Street. Profound. I, I, I guess that the one that's most significant, mm-hmm. when I, because I've thought a lot about this, when I first got in the business, and again, I came to Wall Street in 83, um... Being on the sell side of the street was the cat's meow. Really? That's a that's a huge change. And the buy side were, you know, the great unwashed, you know. Those- and, and for people who may not understand the difference between the terms, if you're on the sell side, you're a broker dealer, you're a commission person, the buy side are hedge funds, mutual funds, asset managers who are buying assets for clients who they're charged with running their money versus, let's say, brokers who are selling client assets either to institutions or individuals. It's a subtle but important distinction. Yeah. You know, and I think back to, you know, the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your average sell-side uh, bond salesman would make maybe $300,000 a year, whereas the guy that he was selling the bonds to would be making $95,000 a year. And that's completely shifted since then. So, so, so essentially, it was the, the the guy who was selling the bonds was making the big bucks. Right. The guy who was buying the bonds was considered to be a necessary nuisance. That's pretty funny. <laughs> and, so so the guy now, buying the bonds is Bill Gross. Yeah. The guy selling the bonds is whoever covered him at Goldman, Morgan, Merrill, whoever. Yeah. And the salespeople were making more than the portfolio manager. Yeah. Whereas now, uh, actually, hedge funds were, you know, 30 years ago an inventory. There were a handful of. Uh, the, the joke is the, the 100 hedge funds that existed 30 years ago are, are still around. They're just the ones creating alpha today. Not a bad joke. Yeah. You know, it has an element of truth to it. Uh, but now it's the guy on the buy side who has this chance to shoot the moon financially. Right. And the guy on the sell side has been replaced by one of those machines over there. Because remember, this uh, back 30 years ago, you actually had uh, the you know the direct lines, mm-hmm. and you didn't have electronic trading. You didn't have price discovery. 
Uh, it was, you know, Harry, I want to buy, you know, five million of, you know, the ATTs. Where are they trading? Other oh, 98, 98 and a half. All right, Phil, get them. Done. Right. Whereas now you know, see, thanks to the terminals, you. See I, I don't need to talk to Harry about where the ATTs are trading. I know, and I can hit a button. And Harry doesn't make three hundred thousand dollars a year anymore. Well, the commission's He's not in business anymore. Right. So the guys that are still in business, the commissions have come down dramatically. They were fifteen cents a, a share. Now it's a penny or two. Yeah. And half of them have, have disappeared. That that business has has completely changed. So 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 actually, I mean, back when we were young, there would be the question of. Where's the customer's yacht? Yacht, yep, sure. The customer the now has the yacht. The broker doesn't anymore. The, that's the famous book that was written in the, I want to say, 30s or, yeah. or 40s. I'm, I'm trying to remember. And I could see the guy's name right in front of me. So, so over my career, the customer has gotten the yacht and uh, the broker hails a cab. And and that's a huge... Uh, I know that's good or bad. That's just an observation. That That's a huge change. You know, the old... The old the other old joke was Wall Street is the only place where, you know, millionaires talk to people. People who take Rolls Royces to work talk to people who take subways to work. And <laughs> yeah. that's a um, no, no, Fred Schwed. I could not access that name. <laughs> that, by the way, that is literally, I've been on Wall Street for 100 years. That is literally the next book in my queue to read. I have never uh, read that book, and people just insist it's hilarious and delightful. I have not read it either. It, it's supposed to be wonderful, and it, it's it's next. I mean, Kindleberger's book has to be on your list. Well, I've read the I mean, that for, you know, along, from the standpoint of you know what kids have got to read and and you know, manias, panics, panics and, exactly. So so though you he, know, though Minsky was a big contributor to that book, by the way. I, I have they I'm were a, very close friends. I'm a, oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I Minsky wrote a huge. Biography of Keynes. Yes, didn't he did. It? Is that is that something that's on your list, or is it a little too wonky? It, it is. Just read general a, employment you, theory. Yeah, and you're you, good. you have to be an affectionado. Okay. It can get really deep into the weeds. There's a. Now, if you like really deep in the weeds. Yeah. Um, that's fine, but I wouldn't recommend that to uh, stabilizing an unstable economy. Is is would be the one book on Minsky. There was an interesting book I read some time ago. Um, uh, is it Keynes' Way to Wealth? It's something like that. It's about Keynes the investor, not Keynes the economist. And it turned out he's really, an, for his day, an extremely successful Buffett-like investor who just completely turned around. I think it's King's College. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And he um, gets back to Chapter 12 of his famous book. He was... A behavioral economist, he understood that markets are not always rational. And the beauty contest is a perfect example. The beauty example contest of that. is a perfect one, uh, and uh, he had the ability, and he actually lost some money sometimes, being a little bit early uh, or wrong. Uh, well, that's as traders know, early is it, it is wrong. It can be wrong. Uh, essentially, saying you know, uh, when bad news is fully discounted. And I hear about it from the guy who shines my shoe at the bus station. Mm -hmm. Probably it's time to go the other direction. M makes sense. Uh, la our last two uh, or last three favorite questions. So given these major changes that we've seen over the past three decades, what are the next couple of changes that we're going to see uh, coming up? First and foremost, I think, is fiduciaries – 
you know, whether it's endowments or defined benefit pension schemes or colleges. Do we want to call them defined benefit schemes? Is that the right uh, phrase? That's what they call them, you know. Defined benefit plans? Yeah, I, 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 maybe I just, you know, Pimco, we had, to, I was around the British too often. Oh, okay. So, schemes. <laughs> okay. That, that's a British phrase. I'm right. About, it, it doesn't have the same connotation. No, it doesn't mean anything. There's right. A, it's, it's a, a stra- standard word there. Here, it means something nefarious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, and it's like, you know, I remember the, one of the British phrases that struck me is frequently when something is good, around, uh, they will say brilliant. Right. I mean, here in America, we've reserved brilliant for, you know, special sort of things. Right. No, brilliant you know, is, oh, that's good. You know, how was your iced tea? Oh, brilliant. Right. You know, I've never described an iced tea as brilliant. <laughs> oh, you haven't had my iced tea. <laughs> You're, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's fantastic. It's it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, so, so what so, are the— So I think is having expectations—bringing uh, uh, down expectations to what— Logically, can it be expected over the next 10 to 20 years on returns? More modest numbers, more modest returns. Yeah, more modest returns. Uh, and the difficulty of doing that is the rearview mirror effect. Mm-hmm. And the last five to seven years have been absolutely glorious investment Spectacular. years. Spectacular. Spectac- uh, and by the way, the people who were you mentioned earlier who were on the wrong side of that, this is a once-in-the-lifetime, maybe twice-in-a-lifetime sort of market run, and if you missed it, well, don't worry, there'll be another one coming around in 40 years or so. This was all about having to use monetary policy alone to get out of a liquidity trap, which means that there's a revaluation of all long-duration assets with equities being the longest. Uh, And so it has been an absolute marvelous time to... Uh, be in the markets because you've been revaluing assets. Now you simply have lofty asset prices. Right. We've been revalued. What does that mean going yeah. forward? It means theoretically, and I know yeah. Rob Arnott is also in this camp, theoretically yeah. lower returns over the next. Yeah. As is Cliff Athness, all the quants basically are in the, the camp of, hey, the odds are that you're going to see lower than average returns. You've just had higher than average returns at least over the past six years. I mean, I mean, suppose you buy a stock that has one dollars worth of earnings at ten times. So you pay ten bucks for the stock. That's a good. That's a good investment, probably. Okay, it's, it's actually not a bad investment. Suppose five years later, it's still making one dollar. But now it's. But but the but Mark has decided it's worth a thirty multiple. It's still just making one dollar. Same but company. But the stock has gone from ten dollars to thirty dollars. Are you a genius? Should you buy more at thirty? The uh, d- if you're a momentum investor, you're all over it. If you're a value yeah. guy, you, you're probably a seller, not a buyer at that point. Exactly. And but it's really hard to say I bought it at ten and now it's at thirty, so therefore it double. It, 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 you know, wow! I made a potload of money over the last five years. I can't possibly sell this stock, and it, it, it's going to go to sixty, and then it's going to go to ninety. Human nature is to extrapolate. That's simple. Leon Cooperman tells a story that so another value guy from Columbia, yeah. that uh, and put up tremendous, tremendous numbers. They have a target. When they hit their target, they sell. Some of his clients come to him and say, "Listen, Lee, we have a need for a tax-sensitive portfolio." So he structures same basic underlying thing. Only when it hits his target, he doesn't sell. He lets it run because they're not looking for it's got to be a certain length. He said the returns on the tax-sensitive um, portfolio 
are actually better than the returns on the tax-insensitive portfolios because it forces you to hold things far beyond where left to your own devices you might. And his numbers are, are, are just ridiculous. So I know I can't keep you forever. Let me get to my favorite last two questions. Um, the first, so someone's graduating college or a millennial or whatever we want to call this generation, what advice does Paul McCulley give to those kids coming out of school right now if they're thinking about a career in finance? Let's take a long walk around the block and see if you can think of another industry. Really? Um, I uh, remember I have my son is 26 years old. Mm -hmm. and not going into the family business? No, he's not going into finance. He uh, is in the technology business. He's a gamer and a programmer. Uh, and you and, think this technology stuff is going to catch on? Uh, what I do know uh, is there's a lot of America that hasn't gotten, hasn't exploited the technology that we have. Uh, where my That's interesting. And in, in the area that my son's in, which I think is really a growth industry, is just taking what technology we have now and applying it to core businesses, whether it's education, mm -hmm. the medical care system, the DMV, all sorts of areas, information management. Now, sitting here in Bloomberg's building, obviously, you have the best of it all on technology. The, the, uh, so you, This floor that you're standing on, I don't know if, if you ever see them take the floor yeah, apart. Yeah. There's nothing but fiber optic cables as thick as your leg running through here. The building was built pre-wired for nothing but information technology. But this is the exception. Most industries are not this tech forward looking. Yeah. And I think I mean I think that is a huge growth industry. The medical profession is an area that's it, it's always, ripe for it, absolutely. Uh, is is ripe for it. government itself, uh, transportation, lots of areas. So I think the application of technology in a general uh, economic sense is where the growth is. Besides, you know, the you know the, the really you know wise you know uh, guys who can figure out you know what to make my my uh, my smartphone do. Uh, though I reach it reaches its limitations, I think. Uh, That's a function of us being old guys. Yeah, the, the younger kids ha don't don't they don't get saturated the way. And I kind of have a foot in each camp. Uh, I'm tech oriented enough to really like all my toys and my phones. But I sort of see myself, the people older than me are, are utterly saturated sooner and the people younger than me are wholly immersed in it with no end in sight. It, it's fascinating to watch that. So you wouldn't send people into finance all that, that quickly. Yeah, and if you know a kid wanted to go into finance, mm -hmm. Where I would say is over the next 20 to 30 years, Asia, in particular China, but I think the emerging markets at large, if they're going to shift to more domestic demand, mm -hmm. are going to have to, to construct a household sector finance mm -hmm. uh, sector that is meaningful and uh, so that would be the area. You think in terms of here in America. So be prepared to travel, be prepared to adapt. Yeah, and also think in terms of bringing 
credit effectively mm -hmm. to the growing middle class of the emerging market. She think in terms which is of, a huge market. It, it's a huge market, and it and it it's got to happen over the next thirty uh, years. Is it underserved? Or it, it's uh, it's underserved in part because of barriers to entry. But that is a frontier for a kid with thirty year uh, a career uh, is to be the king of consumer finance. Go to Brazil, go to Argentina, and an emerging, go to Hong Kong. emerging market. Whereas, of course, we think now here in America, you know, somebody gets out of college, he's probably already got a college loan, he gets a loan or lease right. on a car, you know, he borrows money from his dad for a down payment on a house. So we think in terms of, of essentially borrowing forward income. Right. As a young person and paying it back as you get older. And, and your income goes up, yes. That's a concept that will get roots in the emerging markets over the next two to three decades, and there's a lot of money being to be made in that space. So so Argentina, Chile, Vietnam, where, where would you send a kid today? You know, first, it would depend upon which language, his facility okay. for language. So actually, the advice, let's go back four years, you're in college, yeah. learn to speak Portuguese, Spanish, Mandarin, yeah, and exactly. whatever else. Exactly. Uh, Latin is really cool, but I don't know very many people who transact in Latin these days. Right. You could become a monk. You could go <laughs> do the original stuff. And they brew fantastic beer. So, But I don't know if that really counts yeah. as a career in finance. Okay. Last question. All right. And this is my favorite. What do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you began all those years ago? I love the thoughtful pregnant pause, too. Your most precious asset is time. I knew you were going to go there. Elucidate. Expand on that. To me, the con. I can make more money if I need to make more money. Mm -hmm. I can't make more time. You can, you can, you can trade time for money, but you can't trade money for time. Is the James Taylor lyric? Exactly. And that's what I deeply appreciate now. And I, you know, I'm not, you know, beating myself up on it, but I, uh, it, it, looking back, I wish I'd had a deeper appreciation for that mm -hmm. at a younger age. Is there any rational reason that a man has been to Beijing 26 times and not seen the wall? I have a friend whose company. <laughs> I have a friend whose company in the mid '90s was bought by Yahoo. Worked out really well for him, and in a, a conversation like this, he said something similarly. I go, "Gee, you travel all over the country, all over the world for Yahoo. Uh, that must be so much fun. You must see so many places." And his answer was, "Yeah, I could tell you what every major airport, every every major hotel, every major." Conference facility is like, but I have no idea what those countries are like. So when you're traveling for business, you don't get to sightsee. You don't. We had, um, we had somebody in here. Oh my God, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Byron Ween. We had Byron, yeah. who's still in his 80s and still travels uh, uh, constantly for work, which is he's at at um, BlackRock, still constantly traveling for work, but. He takes his wife along. He builds a week into the trip. Well so he goes to China, and then he sightsees for a week. He goes to the Philippines, and then he sightsees. He was describing having more fun now working 
because he sees the world than you know than he did you know the decades at Morgan Stanley. It was the same situation. You may be in China twenty six times, but never having seen the wall. Yeah, I guess you know to use a you know a cliche about the whole thing. Um, when you're a young person and immortal. You're immortal at those ages. Yeah, right? yeah. Actually, you don't think in terms of you know the fact that you may get old because you know that's way off in the future. Right. Finite lifespan yeah. is theoretical; it's not real. Is the the the, the concept of work life balance mm-hmm. is but a concept, right? Uh, which actually financially works out well for you because all you do is work, <laughs> right? But with time uh, and maturity. Uh, you recognize that time is your most valuable asset and that I've never seen a tombstone that read, I wish I had put more hours in at the office. Speaking of time, thank you, Paul McCulley, for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. We've been speaking with Paul McCulley. He is the former chief economist at PIMCO and has a long and storied history on Wall Street. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I sure know I did, look up an inch or down an inch on the Apple iTunes and you'll see our other almost five dozen uh, previous Masters in Business series. Uh, I want to thank the people who helped put this interview together. My head of research is Michael Batnick, my producer, uh, for lack of a better word, is the head engineer uh, at here at Bloomberg is Charlie Vollmer. And my recording engineer is Matt Matt Ryan. I know his name is Matt. I can't remember last names. There's a lot of work that goes into putting these together, and I'm always grateful for all the assistance that, that takes to make this happy. Uh, be sure and go to Apple iTunes if you enjoy this and review uh, the various... Masters in Business series we've done, and catch us next week. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.